Well, if we are to grow in our faith, we must be rescued from our self-reliance. Probably picked up on that theme this morning. It's what we see in Genesis chapter 32. If we're going to grow in our faith, we must be rescued from our self-reliance. And Martin Luther even captures that theme in the second verse of his well-known hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is He. Or Sabaoth His name, from age to age the same, and He must win the battle. Well, as Christians, we must not confide in our own strength to endure hardships, to endure the hardships of life and to persevere through the dangers that threaten to undo us. But rather, those are often the occasions that God uses in our lives to draw us to deeper dependence on Him. You see, if we are to grow in our faith, we must be stripped of our self-reliance. Stripped of that self-reliance that we would turn to trust in the Lord as our mighty fortress. This morning, we're going to jump back into our sermon series in the book of Genesis. We've been gone for about a month now. We'll see this morning in Genesis chapter 32, God's faithfulness and His grace to strip Jacob of his self-reliance, to teach him to trust God's divine protection, to trust His promises, And the Lord does this in a shocking way. Go ahead and turn with me, if you haven't already done so, to Genesis chapter 32. If you want to use that pew Bible in front of you, take the pew Bible, turn to Genesis 32. That's found on page 27 of your pew Bible. If you've come this morning, if you don't own a Bible, uh, use that Bible this morning, turn to page 27, and then take that Bible home with you as a gift from our church to you. We'd love for you to read more about who God is and what He's done in Jesus in the pages of the Bible. And as you turn there, a little bit of context since we've been out of the book for a little while, chapter 32 begins with Jacob about to re-enter the promised land. He's been gone for over 20 years. He didn't plan to stay that long, but in God's plan, that's how long he was there. And he fled the promised land really on the run for his life. He was known to be a deceiver, a a swindler, and he had swindled his brother Esau out of Esau's birthright and Esau's blessing, and Esau was threatening to kill his brother. And so his mother sent him away with the approval of his father. He went away, and even in that time, he was looking for a wife there in the, the land of his relatives. He ended up staying for over 20 years, and he found himself under the oppression, suffering under a relative there, Laban, who ended up deceiving and tricking Jacob. But his time away and that harsh treatment under Laban, God used that period of time for good in his life, to bless him. God gave him Rachel and Leah as wives, descendants just like he had promised him, and ended up delivering him from Laban. God had promised to return him safely back to the land. And Genesis 32 picks up right as he's about to re-enter the land. But If he's going to re-enter the land, he now faces a new threat, his brother Esau. That's where chapter 32 
picks up. And if you're taking notes this morning, the main idea that I want us to see in this passage is this. We grow in our faith as God humbles us to rely on Him. We grow in our faith as God humbles us to rely on Him. This is a long chapter today, so what I'm going to do is split up the reading. I'm going to first read verses 1 through 21, and then we'll, we'll track with the second part of the passage later on in the sermon. Let's start. Let me read for us all now verses 1 through 21 as we begin our time. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Maenaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, and the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and O God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children." But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me, and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are present, sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him. And he himself stayed that night in the camp. As we make our way through this passage this morning, I want us to see two ways that we endure hardship in confidence. 
two ways that we endure hardship in confidence in the Lord. The first way is here in verses 1 through 21. Wait on the Lord and remember His promises. Wait on the Lord and remember His promises. When Jacob left the promised land in chapter 28, he had a dream. He had a dream that involved angels ascending and descending up a ladder. It was the Lord Himself appearing to him and speaking to him there in a, in a dream. He saw angels as he left the land, and now, as he's about to re-enter the promised land in chapter 32, verse 1, he sees angels again. He's met by angels of God, and we see God's presence with Jacob, heaven reaching down to earth, a group of angels of God meeting him right as he's about to re-enter the land. And when Jacob saw them, he said in verse 2, this is God's camp. So the Lord provided an encampment of, of angels there to accompany Jacob almost as an escort safely to return back in the land. And so Jacob called the name of that place Maenaim, which means two camps. It was clear Jacob understood he wasn't alone. The Lord and his army camped alongside him. There indeed were two camps. Now, there's not a lot of detail given here what all Jacob saw with these angels. We don't know all that was said. We don't get as much detail as we saw back in chapter 28 when he was about to leave the land. But what is clear is that this was a supernatural and visible point of reassurance. God was reassuring him. God had already given his word and his promise that he would safely return Jacob back to the land. We saw that in chapter 28, verse 11, where here's God's grace, his mercy in giving reassurance to Jacob. God, God reassured him that there would be his divine presence and protection. And angels from the Lord would prepare the way for Jacob's return. Well, how can God's people face hardship with, with confidence? Well, at times we see in the Scriptures God's people were able to see angels. We see that particularly with the patriarchs in the book of, of Genesis, but that's, that's not the normal way that God helps His people face hardship. So you shouldn't expect as a Christian, well, if God will show me an angel today, that'll get me through a difficult situation I'm going through in my life. This wasn't the, the norm. It really happened. It was an act of mercy. It was God showing reassurance. But we have to understand, Jacob had already received the Word of God. And the normal way for you and I as Christians to receive assurance and reassurance of God and His faithfulness is to look to His Word. The normal way through hardship is remembering God's Word. What follows in verses 3 through 21, it's kind of a roller coaster of, of faith. So you see high points and you see low points. And really we're at a place where Jacob is growing in his faith. We see a picture here in verses 3 through 21 kind of high points of, of, of faith, and then we see scheming, we see prayer, we see scheming again. He's still a work in progress. And isn't that true for you here this morning, Christian? We're still a work in progress, a work that God began in us that He promises to complete. And so we have a real-life illustration here in the life of Jacob of God's grace to help him grow in his 
faith. We see this up and down ride of submission to God, so high points, and then kind of descending back into self-reliance. Well, verses 3 through 8, they give us a picture of the threat before Jacob. So Jacob sends out messengers to Esau, and he's hoping to find favor from his brother Esau, but it didn't look too promising. His messengers, his servants come back and say, hey, your brother Esau has 400 men with him. That is not a welcome home party. That's not like, hey, I got my 400 best friends. We are welcoming you home. Jacob, it's been a long time. Let's have a feast. Welcome back. The 400 men, that was an army. He was coming for battle. He'd been stewing for nearly two decades about how he would go about seeking vengeance and retribution against his brother who swindled away his birthright and his blessing. Now, at some level, this was a problem of of Jacob's own making, right? His deception, his swindling of his brother Esau, that had set a lot of this dysfunction into motion, and now he has to face it, and he's terrified. Now, look at Jacob's response in verse 7. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He's afraid. He senses the the threat, and he comes up with a plan to divide his people into two camps, right? So he's thinking, I might be able to escape with like kind of half of what I have. It's kind of like a a military tactic there in the moment. But the impression that I take from this is is not that this is a a shrewd plan. I don't see that as a a shrewd plan. Jacob, clearly we see here, he's scared. Now his fear is, is certainly reasonable. I mean, there's a real threat. His brother and 400 men, his brother had already made it clear he wants to kill him. He'd fled from him. Here's 400 men. This is a a real threat. So his fear is not unreasonable, but I don't think that his response is to be commended. I think he's so scared here. This is kind of an act of, of panic. And what he's willing to do, he's willing to offer up part of his family and part of his possessions that God had given to him just to give that up. I think this isn't something that to be commended here, like, oh, he came up with a wise plan. Sounds like a good idea, a good tactic. I think what's happening here is he's struggling to trust the Lord. But then what Jacob does next stands out as an act of faith. So kind of going up the roller coaster here, a high point in verses 9 through 12, we see Jacob pray. Well, how do you face hardship with confidence? Prayer. It seems like that's what Jacob should have done first. Rather than come up with a plan and then pray, it seems like he should have just started this prayer off first. You know, Jacob, he brings his fear to the Lord here in in prayer. That's a model for us. It's good for you and I to take our fears to the Lord in prayer regularly. He invites us to do that. God doesn't have the response like, are you kidding me? You're afraid of that? told you I'd protect you. He doesn't think that sounds whiny or complaining or or weak. God invites us in our weakness to come before Him with our fears, to to trust Him, to claim His promises, to be renewed in strength, to be renewed in faith. He invites all who are weak, all who are fearful to regularly come to Him in prayer. Well, brother and sister, I, I wonder how long you wait to bring your fears to the Lord in prayer. I wonder how long it takes you. 
Take you a few days, a few weeks. Yeah, one way we can encourage one another in this church is as we're sharing things that are difficult, anxieties we have, things we're fearful of, just to turn to that person and say, hey, can I pray for you right now? Let's lift that up to the Lord in prayer. Something simple like that that any member of our church could do is a basic ministry we'd have one another that would remind us, yeah, I need to take this fear to the Lord in prayer. That's what Jacob does here in verses 9 through 12. What we see here, it's the longest prayer in the book of Genesis. And the content of this prayer, it's a model for us. In verse 10, we see humble confession. Look at this humble confession in verse 10. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. This prayer of humble confession shows growth in Jacob's faith. I think it shows him a maturing faith. We haven't heard this type of talk out of Jacob in the book of Genesis yet, that he's not worthy of the Lord's blessing. Now, this humble confession, it's an appropriate and necessary attitude for prayer and worship. We're not going to pray if we're not walking in humility. We may sing on Sunday mornings, but we won't truly be worshiping if we're not living and acting in an attitude of humility. You see, worship and prayer, they're they're not about our worth, how deserving we are of God to answer our prayers, how deserving we are of the things that we long for and desire and want. That's not what prayer is about. Prayer is about kind of recalibrating our hearts to focus on God and His worth. He alone is worthy. That's what worship does. Worship turns us away from being consumed with self, consumed about our selfish thoughts. And all of us have them, All of us came into this worship place this morning at some level focusing on what's been hard and difficult in our lives, maybe even insecure about what other members of this church think about you. And worshiping together in corporate worship is a moment that God will often use to recalibrate our hearts, to humble us, to point us away from focusing on ourselves, to understand God alone is worthy. That's what's happening here in in prayer. Well, brother and sister, I, I wonder... How often do you feel unworthy of God's blessing in your life? How often do you feel unworthy of how deeply, richly He's blessed you in Jesus that you get to be a member of a local church, that you get to wake up on Sunday mornings and come be a part of the greatest meeting on the face of planet earth, the meeting of God's people to worship a holy and living God on Sunday morning. If you were left up to yourselves, you'd be sleeping right now, playing golf, hitting up Axios' top 20 brunch spots here in Charlotte. By God's grace, you're not living like that. It's your desire to be here. Even if you woke up this morning and were wrestling with, should I come this morning? At some level, God gave you the desire that you know you need to be here. When we come together to worship as a church, it reminds us of how worthy God is and how unworthy we are of His love and His kindness and His grace. God humbles us as we pray and worship. Well, this prayer continues on in verse 11 with the main request or the main petition. Verse 11, please deliver me from the hand of my brother. It's His main request, kind of gets to that very quickly, asking for God to deliver him. That's also, this petition is also a a type of confession. 
He's confessing here that he believes that God has the power to do this. 400 men, an army approaching, Jacob's confessing, I don't have the power to save myself, but you do, Lord. So I'm coming and asking you to deliver me. He's not trying to come up with a plan of how he can best fight them. I mean, he had that plan to have two different camps, but I think he realizes pretty quickly this is a really dangerous situation. That's the best I got, is just to give up almost half of what I own. Lord, I need your help. I need your protection. You see, every request that we offer to God in prayer, it's also a type of confession. It's confessing faith in God. It's also confessing we are not capable. We're not able. We don't have the wisdom. We don't have the power. We don't have the strength. We need the Lord. Brother and sister, I wonder what it is that you're asking God to do in your life. Is there something you're regularly praying and asking God to do in your life? That's a good practice. It's a good practice to say, Lord, help me to grow this week in my devotion to you in in prayer and in the Word. Lord, help me to grow as a joyful person this week. Lord, lead me away from complaining. Lead me towards being joyful. Guard my heart from anger, Lord, and help me to be a person of peace. What is it that you're regularly praying from God, for to God? If there's not something you're regularly praying, I think it's a good thing. Jot something down right now as you're taking notes. Put something on, on your phone to say, I want to pray and ask God to do this in my life. See, prayer at its core is asking God. It's asking Him to come and to work. I wonder what it is that you're asking God to do in your life, what you're asking God to deliver you from. Well, the prayer closes in verse 12 in the same manner as it started in verse 9, rehearsing God's promises in prayer. In verse 9, Jacob claims the promise that God first gave to Abraham and Isaac that's passed on to him. And then in verse 12, he rehearses the promise of God's blessing to bring a multitude from him. So we see Jacob's faith in God and in God's promises as he rehearses those promises in prayer. Now, God certainly didn't need reminding of those promises, but Jacob did. That's how it works with us. We pray God's promises, which a great way to pray is just to pray through Scripture. Pray promises of God's Word. God doesn't need the reminder of those promises, but you and I regularly need those reminders. You see, we can be strengthened by God's promises as we pray. We've mentioned this before. Just turn to promises in God's Word. Turn to a promise like Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, and and pray a promise like that. Pray and remember, my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Remember Romans 8.32, and then pray it. He who did not spare His own Son but gave him up for us all. How will he not, along with him, graciously give us all things? Pray and remember that Jesus is with us always. Pray and remember the promise in Matthew 28, 20, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. If we're going to remember God's promises, we must be a praying people. Well, just like a roller coaster, the the high point lasted for a moment, and we see a descent back into self-reliance. So Jacob's prayer is a model for us, but what we see next in verses 13 through 21 is a model for us of what not to do. 
Rather than wait for the Lord to deliver him from Esau, Jacob acts and tries to deliver himself. And again, this may seem confusing, like, what in the world, Jacob? Well, let us not be so prideful that we think this is just Jacob. Let us examine our own lives. How often do we pray about things and then go right back into worrying about them and trying to figure out a way to, to fix things in our own lives? You see, we've got built into the book of Genesis real living illustrations that believers can relate to, but we also see a commendation, a call to turn and trust the Lord, to take a break from trying to fix things yourself and to rely on God or remember His promises. Verses 13 through 21, he, takes, he tries to take care of the problem by appeasing his brother Esau with a present. So you see in verse 13, he took a present for his brother Esau. In verses 14 through 15, it lists out over 550 animals, which I read this week, is, is, was typically the size of a tribute offered to a king to try to find favor with a foreign king. Jacob sends this gift to appease Esau. And he gives the instruction to his servants, like, space out this present, so send them in droves, meaning there's just going to be wave after wave of present coming to Esau. And so kind of like on Christmas morning, we're just opening up present after present. He's wanting to send present after present of all these animals to his brother Esau, trying to win him over, trying to use his riches and his wealth to buy his brother off. We see here a shift from trusting God in prayer to trusting himself, trusting his riches, trusting his possessions, relying on himself. In the previous verses, he was offering a prayer to God. Here, he's offering a present to Esau. Rather than trust that God accepted his prayers, here he hopes that Esau accepts his present. Now, this roller coaster scene from verses 3 through 21, it shows that Jacob is, is wrestling with his own self-reliance. You know, when you first read through Genesis 32, you may think, wow, there's a wrestling match there at the end. Like, that's, that's really interesting. It's an odd scene there. There's a wrestling match. But we skip over the wrestling match in verses 1 through 21. Jacob was wrestling with himself. He was wrestling with his own self-reliance. We see here this call to pray, this call to come before the Lord, to pray and to wait. And I wonder what you're wrestling with self-reliance. I wonder what it looks like in, in your life. See, I think praying and waiting is something we should regularly give ourselves to. In fact, one of the greatest obstacles to growing in our faith I think it's that we struggle to wait on the Lord. We live in a society, we like everything fast. We do. I, I love mobile orders these days. They're awesome. I mean, you don't have to wait in line at Starbucks behind like 10 frappuccinos to be made just to get your cup of drip coffee. You can just order it and pull up, and I can send all my kids in and have coffee immediately, right? We just live in this like society that's built around convenience, and I wonder how often we try to relate to the Lord like that. Like we pray, and we think, okay, I prayed, like great, like Lord, what's happening here? We just grow impatient. There's something to praying and waiting. Brothers and sisters, our struggle to wait is often our obstacle to growing in our faith. But you know what? I mentioned this earlier in our pastoral prayer. One sign that we're waiting for God is that we're praying. And sometimes God puts us in situations where we can't do anything about it, dangerous situations. Sometimes those are physical situations where we can't change our physical health. A doctor can't give us any answers or any prescription. It's often moments like that that God humbles us to rely on Him and to, to wait. Think about a, a helpless situation you've been in recently. 
Think about an area you've felt helpless in. Maybe it's even a temptation that you've given into over and over again, and you've, you've been praying for it, and you just feel like, I've tried, and I've, I've tried in this area, and you start to despair. Hopefully, that encourages you. That helplessness hopefully encourages you to pray more. Typically, God will use those moments where we feel helpless to guide us to prayer. I remember the, the most helpless situation, one of the most I've felt in my life. I was gone on a, a four hours away from home. This was years ago. Uh, we just had three kids at that time. We have four now. Three young kids. I went away from four, for four hours for a reunion with my college friends. We stayed up really late at night, and uh, my wife called what was probably a decent hour in the morning, but since we had been up to like three in the morning hanging out, catching up, it kind of woke me up. I was barely awake, talking to her, hearing about what was going on with her morning, and she was coming back from the farmer's market with our kids, having just purchased a number of items. And all of a sudden, as I'm half asleep on the phone, I hear a loud bang and a scream and the phone cuts off. I'm half asleep, and I think, did that just happen? I'm in the mountains. Maybe it just cut off. Call her back, straight to voicemail. Heart starts racing. Call her back, straight to voicemail. I think in my mind, that sounded like a car wreck. It's my wife. It's my three kids. I am four hours away. I didn't think about this. You know what my reaction was? I dropped to my knees. There was nothing I could do. It was just like in a moment, the only thing to do was to pray. It was what felt like a helpless situation. After praying, I got back up, kept dialing, finally got a hold of her, finally got her to answer. She had been in a terrible car accident. I had no details. I just heard, I've been in a bad wreck, I gotta go, and that was it. I called her back, I said, you gotta tell me where you're at. I'm four hours away, I gotta get somebody there. She did, she gave me like five seconds, here's the intersection I'm at, I was able to call a friend to go and be there with them until I got there. But it was a helpless situation. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know if my wife was okay. I mean, I just talked to her on the phone. How are our three kids? Our youngest at that time was six months old. It was a bad wreck. She said that on the phone. But God used that helpless situation, that moment, to drop me to my knees in prayer. Now, by God's grace, they were fine. The Lord protected them. He watched over them. They walked away from that accident with just minor damages. But I wonder what it is, the helpless situation in your life that you're going through right now. Is it leading you to prayer? If so, I think you can trust. Like the Lord is at work. He's growing me in my faith. First Peter chapter 5, verse 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, so that in due time He may exalt you. Cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Whose hand do you trust more to get you out of a difficult situation? Your hand or the Lord's. If we're to grow in our faith, we are to come and trust the hand of the Lord to wait for Him to remember His promise. While Jacob was wrestling with himself, he was soon to have another type of wrestling match. That's what we see in verses 22 through 33. In verses 22 through 33, we find a, a second way there that we can endure hardship and confidence. The second way, cling to the Lord and rely on His promises. Cling to the Lord and rely on His promises. Let me read for us verses 22 through 33. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. 
When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. The setting of the scene is there in verse 22. Jacob sends his family and all that he has across the stream into the promised land, across the river there. And he's left alone on the other side at night all by himself. And then in verse 24, a shocking scene, what appears to be a man out of nowhere starts wrestling with him. At first, again, Jacob perceives this as a man. I mean, it's, it's, it's dark, he, he can't see. Who could this have been? Was this Esau, like, jumped up on him and snuck up on him and attacked him before he could even get into the land? Well, no, this was God. The scene unfolds, it became clear to Jacob, and it becomes clear to the reader. This is the Lord. Now, Martin Luther called this passage one of the most obscure in the Old Testament. There is a lot here that seems odd, a lot of questions as to what is going on in this passage. But let's not lose sight. While this may seem odd and it may sound mysterious, we may have a lot of questions. This is history. This event really happened. We see Jacob, he really left limping. It was a real physical limp, an injury he sustained from the Lord. That's one clue we know it really happened. We also see at the end this editorial note in verse 32 of a dietary restriction in Israel. This dietary restriction of not eating the sinew of the thigh was reflecting back on this moment in history. They memorialized this moment for the people of of Israel. So this was a real-life wrestling match, the ultimate wrestling match between Jacob and God. And it may sound strange to us at first, why would God wrestle with a human being. It may sound strange to us living in this day and time, even in this moment as Christians and in redemptive history, but we see in Genesis that, that God, he, he walked and he talked with Adam and Eve. And you might think, well, that was before the fall. Of course that happened. Well, after the fall, we, we see God coming about and, and appearing in different ways, different what we call theophanies or appearing of God, where the invisible God gives a visible manifestation of himself. And we see places like Genesis 18, where we've been already, that God came and dined with Abraham. He dined. He ate a meal with him and and warned him of what was about to happen in Sodom and Gomorrah. So it it may sound strange to us, but think about God's manifestation of his presence and giving of his presence throughout the story of the Old Testament. It may sound strange that God's presence dwelled in a tent, 
But he did there in the tabernacle. It may sound strange that God's presence dwelled in a building built by Solomon, but we see that happen, God's presence there in the temple. And to Old Testament believers, it would have been fascinating to understand God's presence one day will live in every believer because we live in the new covenant. For those who repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ at the moment of conversion, you are filled with the Spirit of God. Every believer filled with the Spirit. That would have been fascinating and marvelous for them to understand the presence of the holy God that dwelt in the tabernacle and the temple. Now, every believer is a type of temple, the presence of God living in us. So we live at a different moment in redemptive history where this may sound strange to us. That's how God chose to reveal Himself in that day, in that time. Here, God appears as a man, a visible manifestation of the invisible God, and He wrestles with Jacob. Now, God appearing as a man, does that sound familiar? All these theophanies of the Old Testament, all these manifestations, they build up to the the ultimate theophany in the New Testament, where God didn't just appear as a man, but God became a man. God came in the flesh. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came down to earth, fully man and fully God. He came down and He took on flesh to lay that flesh down, to die on the cross, to give that body, that human body, as a payment, as a sacrifice for the sin of anyone who would turn and trust in Him. He put that body to death willingly, dying on the cross. And then that body was raised by God on the third day. Jesus resurrecting from the dead, showing that there's never been a man like Him, that He is who He said He was. He's the Son of God. He did what He said He was going to do, die on the cross and rise from the dead on the third day. And that His payment for sin is sufficient to cover all the sins of anyone who would repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ. All these theophanies in the Old Testament, they build up to the point of the Bible. God's redemptive work in Jesus, His finished work in sending Jesus to die and in Him raising from the dead. Now remember here, in in this particular time, God was just appearing for a moment in the flesh, but this is a real moment of His appearance Now remember at first, Jacob doesn't know who this man is. That's why as you read, you don't know at first either. Just a man grabs him. But it gradually becomes clear, this is no ordinary man. In verse 25, when the man touches Jacob's hip socket, it wrecks him. It cripples him. It puts his hip out of joint. Now the wrestling match is over there. Don't think the rest is wrestling. It's not wrestling. Wrestling ended there. He was crippled. He couldn't continue to to wrestle. You can't do that when you're crippled. The the scene, it shifts from wrestling with God to clinging to Him. You see, Jacob clings, and he holds on, even with his hip out of socket, he holds on clinging, grasping, asking the Lord to bless him. Now, the main focus of this passage, it's the dialogue in verses 26 through 29, between the man and and Jacob. In verse 26, the man's talking, and he says to Jacob, let me go, for the day is broken. Again, that may seem strange. Why is, 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 this is God, why is he saying, let me go? Again, I, I don't think this scene is suggesting that Jacob is stronger than God. Certainly not. I mean, we just saw he took his hip out by touching him. 
So we understand that God in the form of this man could have done anything he wanted to at that moment. I think what's being highlighted is Jacob's resilience to cling on to God. I think it's showing his hope in God and in his blessing. So the man saying, let me go for the day is broken. He came at night. The darkness concealed his identity. With the day breaking, he will be seen. But by now, Jacob just realized, this guy crippled me with a touch. Who does that? This isn't just an ordinary man. I think it's at this moment he becomes aware that this is God. He realized he wasn't tussling with a a normal person. Who else can cripple you with a touch? And so that's why he holds on for a blessing. He begins to get an idea of, of who he's wrestling, and therefore he asks for a blessing. Well, instead of immediately blessing Jacob in verse 27, the man asks a question. What is your name? Now, this isn't because he doesn't know Jacob's name. He's about to do something with that name. He's about to change that name, Jacob. Remember the the name Jacob, what it means? Seaver, heel grabber, right? He came out of the womb grabbing Esau's heel. His life was seen to have been deceitful with his brother and with his father, Isaac. So having to state his name, almost like a confession that came before God's blessing. Now, everything's building up to what we see here in verse 28, God changing Jacob's name. He says with authority, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but but Israel. And the reason for the name change, given there at the end of verse 28, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, the name Israel, it means something like he strives with God. He was striving for God's blessing. In Jacob's life, as striving with men, he dealt deceitfully, he schemed, and he prevailed. He prevailed over his brother Esau in the past, getting his birthright and his blessing. He prevailed over Laban, gaining great wealth from Laban. But what does it mean that he prevailed in striving with God? Again, this certainly doesn't mean he defeated God. That is not possible. Here he was striving, rather, for a blessing clinging on, even though momentarily crippled, he held on for a blessing, held on striving with God in order to gain his blessing. He prevails in the sense that he clings to and depends on God. He would not let go of the Lord. He prevailed when he came to the end of his own striving. He prevailed when he was humbled. He prevailed when he was found clinging to God. Now, it seems at this point, Jacob knows for certain who it is, right? Who else can change your name but God? And seemingly to verify who this is in verse 29, Jacob asks for God's name, but God does not provide it. Instead, he blesses him. And Jacob gets a new name in verse 30. He responds by giving the place a new name, Peniel, which means face of God. And he goes on saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Again, probably another reason that it seems like an obscure passage here, according to Martin Luther, and even with us reading about this, you know, what does it mean that he saw God face to face? Well, again, I think Scripture is the best way to interpret Scripture, and we see in Exodus chapter 33, 
verse 20, the same language being used. And in Exodus 33, verse 20, God Himself says to Moses, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Now, you can't see the face of God and live. So, so what was it that Jacob was, was saying here? Well, in Exodus 33, verse 11, that same phrase is used about seeing God face to face, and it's describing a close and personal encounter with God. So Jacob had there that, that wrestling match that started off wrestling, which turned into clinging to God, was a close and personal encounter with God. His name being changed was also pointing to his character being changed. God working in his life, strengthening his faith in that moment. That's why Jacob even says, after having received a blessing for God, he believes his life has been delivered, meaning Esau is not going to kill me. God has protected me. God's going to do exactly what He promised to do, deliver me safely back into the land. God is with Jacob, and now Jacob is ready to reenter the promised land. But notice how the passage ends in verse 31. Jacob enters the promised land with a limp. One scholar noted, Jacob's limp shows that God has knocked out his self-sufficiency. He doesn't go strutting into the promised land. He doesn't walk strongly into the promised land. He doesn't enter the promised land in his own strength, but limping, like almost barely making it. And this limping would be an ongoing physical reminder in his life of a spiritual reality that his strength would not come from his flesh, but, from, but by faith in God. J.I. Packer said this, as for the rest of his life, he had to walk on a leaning stick. He would need it to lean always upon God. He was first crippled, then he was blessed. Before Jacob could enter that promised land, God humbled him, changed him, gave him a new name, reflecting a reality in his life that he would rely on God and His promises. But there really were two wrestling matches here in this passage. The first one, again, in verses 1 through 21, Jacob wrestled with himself, with his own self-reliance. And the second wrestling match, which is the more obvious one in verses 22 through 33, Jacob wrestled with God. Before he would enter the promised land, he first needed to be stripped of his own self-reliance. And there's a warning here. We need to be clear. Self-reliant people will not enter the kingdom of God. Self-reliant people will not enter the kingdom of God. You won't enter the presence of God in a relationship with Him based on your strength, based on your wisdom, based on your good behavior, based on your good works, but only by God's grace through repenting of your sin and putting your faith in Jesus. Self-reliant people do not go to heaven forgiven people do. Those who trust in Jesus and God's kindness and mercy through His Son, Jesus. And this story, God reminded Israel, only those who rely on Him will enter the promised land. And Jesus, He also reminds the church of this. Jesus warned that not everyone will enter the kingdom of God. If you think, if you come this morning, you think everyone is going to heaven, Jesus never said that. In fact, He gave a warning in Luke 13, verse 24, where He used the word 
striving. He talked about the right kind of striving. In Luke 13, verse 24, Jesus said, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. What he's saying there, he's warning you, one day it will be too late to come to him. And that day may come sooner than you think. And if you've come this morning, you need to know the only way you can have a relationship with God the only way that you can have an eternal destiny with God in heaven, the only way you can be forgiven of your sins is through Jesus. And those who come to Jesus repent of their self-reliance, turn away from trusting in themselves and their own good works, and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ dying on the cross to pay for sin. Trust in His resurrection from the dead that we too might have victory over sin and death. And maybe you need to do that for the first time here today. Maybe, maybe you've come this morning and you've heard this word, and this is a call for you to turn away from trusting in yourself and to trust in Jesus. Uh, come talk with me down front afterwards. I'll be right here afterwards. We'll have other pastors at the other doors on the way out. Talk with someone maybe who invited you this morning about what it would look like to enter into a relationship with the Holy God through faith in Jesus Christ. But for those who already put their faith in Jesus Christ, members of Oakhurst Baptist Church. I want to ask you a question in closing. Do you walk with a strut or with a limp? Spiritually, do you walk with a strut or with a limp? You see, the growth of believers, sanctification in our life is about being stripped of self-reliance. And those who are being stripped of self-reliance, we don't walk with a spiritual strut. We, we limp. We recognize we're unworthy. We recognize that we are needy. We recognize that, that anything in our lives that could be honorable has come from the Holy Spirit of God in us, and all credit and glory is due Him for any fruit seen in our life. We limp, we lean on God, trusting not in our own strength, but walking by faith as we trust in His strength. It's a lesson we must learn over and over again. Jacob entered the promised land with a limp, and believer, so will you. God's committed to our sanctification. That's the good news. And He will humble us to lead us to deeper places of relying on Him. Brother and sister in the Lord, may we seek to rely more and more on the Lord. May we wait on Him and remember His promises. May we, by God's grace, cling to Him and rely more deeply on His promises on our journey to the promised land. May we have the hope set before us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. May we live today in light of that day. Let's pray.